Well, yo, this is George Dr. Frankenstein and Clinton, and you're listening to Ripley's Believe It or Not. I believe it. They do the dog, y'all. Believe it or not. Believe it or not, incomparable, inimitable, illimitable, inestimable, introducer of immeasurable, incalculable, incredible impossibilities. Welcome to Ripley's Believe It or Not cast, the podcast that brings you deep into the strange, the bizarre, and the unusual. I'm Ryan Clark. And I'm Brent Donaldson. And Ryan, I want to tell you a story. Um, when I was about 10 years old, my uh, mom and my stepdad went out and um, left me at home with my older sisters. And uh, I think it was just one of them that was home. Sue, if you're listening, talking about you. Um, and Sue thought it would be a good idea if we watched The Exorcist that night. And so we turned down all the lights and we um, watched The Exorcist. And it scared the holy hell out of me. And um, I and, just remember... And how, old, how old were you again? About 10, I think. Okay. And I just remember sitting there in the dark after it was over, just paralyzed <laughs> in fear. <laughs> um, and I remember thinking, like, just the act of watching that movie had maybe opened the door for evil, like, to enter into my house. And it freaked me out. Um so uh, that kind of ties into what we're talking about today, doesn't it? Well, I think the idea of, of this, the story that is told in that movie and the fear of that is something that people have dealt with since the beginning of time. Mm -hmm. uh, we have a, a little excerpt here from The Atlantic from December of 2018. Uh, the conviction that demons exist and that they exist to harass, derange, and smite human beings stretches back as far as religion itself. In ancient Mesopotamia, Babylonian priests performed exorcisms by casting wax figurines of demons into a fire. The Hindu Vedas, thought to have been written between 1500 and 500 BC, refer to supernatural beings that challenge the gods and sabotage human affairs. For the ancient Greeks, too, demon-like creatures lurked on the shadowy fringes of the human world. In the same piece, we were interested to learn that the belief in demonic possession is widespread in the U.S. today. Polls conducted in recent decades by Gallup and the data firm YouGov suggest that roughly half of Americans believe demonic possession is real. The percentage who believe in the devil is even higher, rising from 55% in 1990 to 70% in 2007. So that's the topic we're dealing with today, demonic possession and exorcisms. And before we get any deeper into this, we should be clear, exorcism as a religious practice is uh, is ancient and spans many cultures, but Westerners typically equate exorcisms with the Christian faith and with the Catholic Church, which is the context we're exploring in our show today. This show is intended to share the viewpoint of one Catholic priest, Father Vincent Lampert, and his experiences performing exorcisms. By sharing the, this interview, we are not promoting or publicizing any religion or religious views, nor the opinions of Father Lampert that some people will definitely disagree with, but we're also not disparaging any religion or religious views or Father Lampert's opinions. We also want to warn you that this episode of The Notcast could be scary for kids. 
Okay, so Father Lampert is a person who definitely believes in demonic possession. Uh, Father Lampert is the official exorcist for the Archdiocese of Indianapolis, and whereas most exorcists keep their identities hidden, Father Lampert obviously is open to doing interviews and indeed often speaks publicly in an effort to turn people toward the church and toward the power of God. We visited Father Lampert at the St. Michael Catholic Church in Brookville, Indiana, where he served as the pastor for a year. And he was moved there, incidentally, because he had too many exorcism requests at his last location. We learned that he was remarkably candid and descriptive and open about the sort of mechanics of evil and the things he's seen and done while fighting it. He trained under longtime Italian exorcist Father Carmine De Felipe at the North American College in Rome and assisted with more than 40 exorcisms. Lampert says that often when he showed up at the parish church where he trained, there would be 50 or 60 people outside hoping for an exorcism or at least an appointment. And during that period, Father, uh, Father Lampert learned firsthand how to set the room for an exorcism, how to recite the prayers of the church, how to prepare yourself for the experience. He learned the kind of, the kind of questions to ask. Uh, he learned how to decide if what he was seeing in front of him was truly something demonic like this. So yeah, so Father Carmine, who was the priest that trained me, he uh, was praying and the person began to shake in the chair and their eyes were rolling in the back of their head and they were foaming at the mouth and growling. And at one point the, the shaking stopped and then there was um, uncontrollable hysterical laughter. And then as I looked over, the person is rising up out of the chair. But what was more interesting is not the levitation, but how the priest responded to it. So he's praying the ritual. He has the book in his hand and as he's praying, he glances over and sees the levitation. He glances back, and then he just takes his other hand, puts it on the head of the person, pushes him back down into the chair without even flinching or missing a beat within the prayers. I sat down with Father Carmine before I left, and uh, we just had a conversation about what are final thoughts that he wanted to share with me? And again, that's when he said, stay focused on what God is doing. I asked him what was the most difficult case that he ever had. And he said he worked with somebody over five years. And uh, in the older rite of the church, the priest could command the demon to name itself. Because when you name yourself, then you're showing a sign of weakness. Because if somebody knows your name, they have a certain power or control over you. So he said he finally asked the demon, is your name Lucifer? And he said the response that came back was quite interesting. He said the demon responded, well, I used to be known by that name, but no longer. So he said he found it interesting that technically Satan can no longer use the name Lucifer because it's the name given by God. And to acknowledge the name Lucifer would be to acknowledge the one who gave it. And since there's been the complete rejection of God, the devil doesn't go by the term Lucifer anymore. So those were invaluable experiences, because when Father Lampert was appointed exorcist in 05, there wasn't anybody else to train under in the United States, which is part of the reason he was only one of 12 officially appointed exorcists in the U.S. that year. 
Speaking of the U.S., there's an American protocol for exorcisms that I think we should tell folks about real quick. So Father Lampert told us that if you think you need an exorcism, step one of the protocol through the Catholic Church is for the person to have a psychiatric evaluation. Step two is to have a physical examination. So the church wants to know, can this person's condition be explained by the mental health field or by the person's medical doctor? Because exorcists are trained to be skeptics. They should be the last one to believe that somebody is possessed. Right. And to be clear, the church is not asking for the doctor or the psychiatrist to determine whether someone is possessed. The church makes that determination. But they do want an expert opinion on the case before moving forward. So those are the sort of protocols for determining if you need an exorcism. Here are the protocols of an exorcism itself. Yeah, I I learned, you know, they always take place in a sacred space so the devil doesn't get to decide where he's going to be defeated. You know, again, in a lot of movies, you see them taking place in, I jokingly say, in somebody's house. A bedroom, right. In a dead, on a, you know on a dead-end street at midnight during a thunderstorm. <laughs> right. That makes for a good movie, but exorcisms always take place in a sacred space. Like a church? Always in a church, in a, a chapel. Uh, the priest determines who will be present. Obviously myself, the one who's afflicted, family member or two of the person, as well as others that may be there to pray. There's no such thing as uh, exorcism tourism. There's nobody that's there just out of curiosity. The church doesn't allow exorcisms to be filmed to maintain the anonymity of the person. It's important to always stick to the ritual of the church. Don't ad lib. Don't ask unnecessary questions. Because mm-hmm. again, then you're allowing the evil spirit then to control the session, if you will, where the exorcist needs to be the one in charge, relying on the power and the authority of Christ that he's given to the church. So again, to stick with the ritual, don't ad-lib. The priest who trained me said, never for a moment think it's what you're doing. He said, once you think it's you, then you've just walked on unholy ground. Always stay focused on what God is doing through you. Can you set the scene a little bit? Do you, how do you prepare the space where this takes place? So in a chapel, <clears throat> usually it will be a set up chairs, maybe in a horseshoe shape. I'm standing at the front. The person that's afflicted is in a chair in the center of that kind of horseshoe shape. The others that are present then are sitting around. And then I'm standing in front of the person. It's always important to make the distinction between the person who's afflicted with the demonic presence and that person for who they are. So, because once the, the manifestation of evil begins, it's no longer that person's consciousness, if you will, it's the evil that's now acting through them. So it's important to make that distinction. Can we stick with the, the scene setting a little bit? And, and um, how does the process begin? What are, the, what are the first things that you might say? Begins making the sign of the cross, blessing the person with holy water, then after the blessing of the person, there's the litany of the saints. It's a special prayer calling upon the saints of the church to come and unite themselves in this prayer of the church. There's reading of uh, the Psalms, 
that talk about the protection of God, such as Psalm 91, I need not fear the terror of the night, nor the arrows that fly by day. There's reading of a gospel, specifically accounts of Jesus casting out demons. It's a reminder to the demonic entity that it has been defeated before, it will be defeated again, so why resist? It's important to note, too, that as soon as the ritual begins, the manifestations will begin. Because the steps of the ritual are meant to cause the manifestations so that the demon will show itself. Manifestations would be uh, eyes rolled in the back of the head, foaming at the mouth, uh, speaking in strange languages, uh, hysterical laughter, screaming, hissing, the resemblance of the movement of a snake. I've seen eyes change color and the pupils become like those of a serpent. Anything, again, the demon wants to say, look at my power, look at my power. So you've got to stay focused when you're performing an exorcism, right? This is why I would be terrible at it. There's no ad-libbing. I just couldn't do it. But I do love the line that the devil doesn't get to decide where he's going to be defeated. Doesn't that just sound like it's just straight out of a movie? Yeah, you got to show him who's boss. So there comes a time in the life of every exorcist when they must go off on their own, armed with their knowledge as weapons against evil. The same was true for Father Lampert. So here's Father Lampert telling the story of the first exorcism he performed back in the United States after completing his training. My first case here was really probably the most dramatic one that I've dealt with because this person was possessed by seven demons. So when these demons named themselves, seven voices came out of the person's mouth at the same time. So you're talking about odd experiences. It's always a cluster. Not that there's a sense of fraternity amongst evil spirits, but just as much as there is a hierarchy of angels, you know, the nine choirs of angels, when these angels fell, they fell from all nine choirs. So they still retain some level of hierarchy with, even within the demonic world. Mm. And when one's possessed by multiple demons, the weakest of them from the lower choirs are always the first to go. And those of a higher choir are always the last to go. Would you be willing to walk us through what happened with with this particular case? Yeah, it took place over the course of a year, meeting in a chapel at a uh, parish here in Indiana, myself and the other priest. And then eventually along the way, this other priest wasn't able to continue just because of distance and logistics. So then I took over the case myself. But early on, after these seven demons named themselves, six of, six of them left mm. within a short span of time. But there was one demon that refused to leave. Mm. So the role of an exorcist is to determine the entry point. So how did evil enter into this person's life? Because you know, the average person, if you're going to church and you're praying, and as a Catholic you're celebrating the sacraments of the church, the devil's already on the run. So if evil is here, what was the entry point? And this particular person said that she had invited the, the demons into her life. She thought she had a friend who was afflicted and then said to her friend, what's ever in you, I freely invite to come into me. And she said, barely did the words come out of her mouth that she felt something come over her. And then for like the next 15 years, 
she exhibited demonic manifestations. This demon named itself as the demon Leviathan, which is a demon mentioned in the book of Revelation, kind of the sea monster, the sea serpent. So in this particular case of the person possessed by the demon Leviathan, the very last session, the demon is manifesting and begins to scream and laugh uncontrollably and then tells me that if I stop praying, it will stop screaming and laughing and whatnot. And about this time, a bell rings outside because where we were at this church, there was a grade school. So there's now like 400 school children pouring out into the parking lot just outside the window of where we are. And then the demon begins to scream even louder and starts laughing and looking at me and says, see, if you stop praying, I will stop screaming. But if you keep praying, I'm going to keep screaming and then people are going to come in here and see what you're doing and then you're going to have to stop. So just stop now. And what did you do? And then using the prayers of the church, commanded the demon to obey me in all things, although an unworthy minister of Christ And then I told the demon to say the line from chapter 1 of Luke's Gospel where the Archangel Gabriel greets Mary, Hail Mary, full of grace. And then the demon looks at me and laughs and goes, Grace of full. Scrambles the words around. Doesn't say the name Mary. And then again I commanded the demon to say the words in the right order. And then the demon that had been speaking in this very deep voice spoke to me like a child and then said, Hail Mary, full of grace. And then there was a shriek and a scream. And all the manifestations ended. And this woman in front of me, her presence was back. And she was beaming and glowing. So Father Lampert would go on to say that everyone has free will, which would then allow someone to disinvite a demon from their body, which makes sense, I guess. But what happens when an exorcism doesn't work? On our website, Ripley's.com, you can read the story of a Gary, Indiana family who was terrorized by a structure that's been dubbed the Demon House. Believe it or not. In November of 2011, Latoya Ammons, a mother of three, moved into a white rental cottage and began to encounter paranormal sort of demonic activities. Immediately after their move, the enclosed front porch was inundated with enormous black flies in the dead of winter. These activities only worsened until one night, Latoya found her 12-year-old daughter unconsciously levitating above the bed. The story really only gets more bizarre from there. Fun fact, Brent. A movie was made about the demon house, just like the real events that inspired The Exorcist. So did you know that Jane Fonda was on the list of actors to play Reagan's mom in The Exorcist, but turned down the movie as a piece of capitalist ripoff bullshit? I did not. (laughs) Uh, Yeah. So one thing I didn't put together until after talking to Father Vincent um, in the movie The Exorcist, the devil doesn't enter into Reagan until after she plays with a Ouija board. I, of course, know that she contacted her imaginary friend, Captain Howdy, and that kicked off everything that happened to her. And then at the end, of course, Father Karras invites the devil into him. But Father Lampert, as you're about to hear, set us straight on the ways he believes some of us invite evil into our own lives. And, spoiler alert, a Ouija board is one of them. That would all fall under the heading of ties to the occult. Okay. So the word occult comes from the Latin word occultus. It means hidden or secret. So people engage in things maybe 
think of uh, going to see a witch or a wizard. When I use the term magician, I'm not talking about somebody that's pulling a rabbit out of their hat. Right. That's an illusion. We can go see David Blaine. That's okay. Yeah, those things. But somebody that's really practicing magic. Because magic is inherently evil. All magic is inherently evil. Because in the book of Deuteronomy in the Old Testament, in chapter 18, verses 12 through 18, it says, don't practice black magic. So then you think of people that are engaged in maybe a seance, trying to speak to the dead, going to see a medium or a psychic, the use of tarot cards, uh, Ouija boards, even certain other so-called religious practices like Reiki, yoga, even the Catholic Church uh, frowns on that because a lot of those are, it's not just an exercise, but it is a, a form of posture in prayer. Yeah, so like ghost hunting, paranormal investigation, those are entry points because it's not that the evil spirits are living in those locations where people are going. So something that's truly of a spiritual nature, we would say doesn't have matter or form. So it's not contained by space. So evil spirits don't have an address like we do. They don't live at 145 St. Michael's Boulevard, Brookville, Indiana. So technically, spirits are neither here nor there. We say they're here or there if they're choosing to act there. So if they're acting in a location, we would ask the question, why is that the case? And it could be the very things that the ghost hunters are doing that are attracting the attention of the evil spirits, which is causing them to manifest in those locations. Because ultimately, the evil spirits are trying to make a connection with individuals. You know, you think about it. Why would a evil spirit want to possess a human person? Good question. Why? Why? Right. The human person, you know, we get old, our, our hair falls out, we have to put on glasses. And so what's so great about it? And the answer is actually pretty simple from a Christian perspective, because the greatest thing that God ever did for us was the incarnation. God took on human form in the person of Jesus Christ. So the devil, in his own twisted sense, who wishes to mimic God in every way, believes that he takes on human form when he possesses a human body. So he has his own twisted sense of the incarnation. So again, just how very subtle things kind of creep in. Interesting. Abuse could be another entry point for evil into a person's life. If one has been dedicated to a demon, Maybe when they're born, one of the exorcisms in Rome was a young lady who said that when she was born, her mother dedicated her to Satan because she didn't want her. So she blamed God for giving her a child she didn't want. So she dedicated her daughter to Satan. And then the girl said that for the first 12 years of her life, she went through all kinds of satanic rituals and abuses. When she was 12, she ran away, ended up on the streets of Rome. I think when she was 18, she found her way to Father Carmine, and then he began to work with her. She was one of the 40 exorcisms when I was there. And then when she was freed, she eventually went on to become a nun. So she dedicated her life to God. Wow. And then she worked to take care of street children in Rome. She knew what it was like to live on the streets. 
So then she dedicated her life to trying to help all these kids. That's a beautiful story Lampert told. And the idea that there are all these kinds of entry points into someone's life is another creepy something that I don't even want to think about. But in the latter part of his conversation, Lampert went on to list what he and the church think are other possible entry points for demonic possession. Not only are they leery of Reiki and magicians, Lampert went on to discuss how Harry Potter, Pokemon, and Disney share religious characteristics. He says most aren't inherently bad, so long as children have their own faith to keep them straight. Now, I'm not sure I agree that Pokemon and Disney are entry points for demonic possession, but to each his own. Still, Lampert says it explains why he's getting more requests than ever before for exorcisms, as many as 1,800 per year. He says the demands for exorcisms are on the rise, while the number of people who identify as Catholic is on the decline. Quote, Go back to some of the comments I made about the entertainment industry. All of that seems to be more fascinating than praying to God or going to church. You hear a lot of people today say going to church is boring. If all you're doing is just going to Mass one hour a week, but you're not doing anything else to get a relationship with God, no wonder you're bored. End quote. So we have one more clip from Father Lampert about a case that was referred to him by another priest who had encountered a woman who was trying to come back to the church after being away for 30 years. He says a neighbor of hers who was a devout Catholic was encouraging her to come back to the church, which the woman found exceedingly difficult because after suffering abuse as a child, she was now showing signs of demonic possession. The servant eyes, as I would call. Okay. So that was a, a case that was referred to me by another priest who had encountered a woman who was trying to come back to the church, had been away from the church for 30-some years. But a neighbor lady who was a pretty devout Catholic was encouraging her to come back to the church. She started to come back, but whenever she could, she found it very difficult to even enter the church. And when she did, her friend said there would be like some manifestations. It was almost like she's acting strange and it seemed like it's not even her. And if she did go into the church, she would feel like she was being tortured and maybe feeling burning pains on her body, so she would run out. So the priest then went to visit her at her apartment, and the neighbor lady came, and the three of them were talking. And the priest said in the midst of our conversation, he said she was, she was like somebody else. Her voice changed. She became very angry. Her skin complexion became kind of more grayish. And then began talking in this strange voice, came over, started cursing and spitting on him and punching him. So then he quickly got out of that scenario. He contacted me. And then we met at his parish. Again, always meet on my turf. I would never meet with anybody alone either. I would always want that person that's afflicted whether it's a family member, a friend, and another priest or somebody. In today's world, it's always good to be prudent, to have other people present. And then the woman was telling me how she believed that the evil came about through abuse. And she said during this time, she drifted away from the church. She started going to see brujas, witches, and people that claimed that they could help her. But everything just seemed to get worse and worse and worse and worse. So she finally then uh, turned to the church. That's how she was making her comeback. So she's telling me her story. She begins to cry. And I'm sitting here, and she's sitting 
across from me, and there's the other priest and her friend. And, and then that's when she says, can you help me? And I said to her, Jesus will help you. And as soon as I said the name Jesus is when her eyes turned green and her pupils became slanted like a serpent, and the voice came out of her mouth that said, well, who's he? He has no power over us. And then that, and she jumped up and kind of in a very defiant stance, the demon's like, well, who's he? He has no power over us. And of course, that's when her friend leaped away from her and the other priest that was there, he, he just began to pray <laughs> immediately. He dropped his knees and started to pray. And then I went over and laid my hand. I got up immediately and went over and laid my hands and started praying. And then this entity was very defiant and trying to attack me. And, and I was able to reach in my pocket and pull out my little holy water sprinkler. And then I, I just blessed the person. And when I did, the, the, wa- the, the drops of water were like lead hitting her. And then she collapsed to the floor and the demon began to whimper. And then I ended the prayer. That wasn't an exorcism. That was just kind of an initial. And I knew that wasn't the time nor the place to do the exorcism. Because mm-hmm. I really needed to... I wasn't prepared to do an exorcism myself. So I thought, nope. So I ended that. And then uh, just those little prayers, though, caused the manifestations to stop. And then I scheduled an exorcism about for about 10 days later. Mm-hmm. And then we were in a chapel. Everything was set up exactly as I explained earlier. And then um, we began. And as soon as I blessed the person with the holy water, the very first thing, there's the entity again. There's the green eyes, the slanted pupils. And then the demon says to me, well, you can't get rid of us. You're not strong enough. And we've been here too long. And then that's just going through the ritual of the church, observing where certain things seem to be more effective, certain prayers. And then the most powerful one was the insufflation prayer, the calling on of the Holy Spirit. So when I breathe on her face, which is very lightly, when I did that, it was like a hurricane wind hit her because she's sitting in the chair and the chair flew across the room and hit the wall. And then you could tell that the demon was being tormented in pain. And then there was a shriek and a scream and she fell out of the chair and fell onto the floor. And then myself and the other priests, I called out her name. We went over and picked her up and that's where she's, she's as beaming as bright as the sun. And all the manifestations are gone. And she starts telling me how worthy she is and how much God loves her. And all of those things just start coming out of her mouth. So there you have it. It sounds almost as if Father Lampert believes that there's a chance that evil is winning this battle at large, or that there is a risk that the diminishing numbers of the faithful are opening the door to evil. He definitely comes off as a soldier for God, and that's a powerful idea. So no matter what you believe, one thing that's true is that a diversity of opinions and viewpoints and beliefs makes life interesting, and we thank Father Lampert for taking the time to talk with us. So now we've come to the part of the podcast where we discuss misconceptions about some aspect of the topics we've covered. We call it the or not portion of the show because this is where we put modern day facts to the test because you can't always believe what you hear. 
This week, we've discussed exorcisms, from what we think we know about them to what really is supposed to occur. Father Lampert himself noted how scared he was when he was called to go to Rome and learn about the process. Part of the reason he was scared, he says, is because all he knew of exorcisms were what he saw in pulp culture. You can count us as being in that same boat until now. After our interview with Father Lampert, we continue to discuss what Hollywood continuously gets wrong about exorcisms. Number one, the priest determines who will be present. There's no such thing as exorcism tourism. No one is there just out of curiosity, and the church doesn't even allow exorcisms to be filmed to maintain the anonymity of the person. But Father Lampert also says that he will never meet alone with the afflicted. He will always bring another priest with him. Number two, people are normally possessed by more than one demon. Sometimes it could be as many as 10, and each must be dealt with separately, as some are more powerful than others. Number three, Lastly, the ending of the exorcist would never happen, Lampert says. He can't just bring a demon into himself to save someone else. And if you think about it, he says, the way this worked, every exorcist would only perform one exorcism. Quote, I don't have any special powers or abilities. If we're relying on me, we'd all be in trouble. End quote. That's what he says, believe him or not. Ripley's Believe It or Not cast is produced by myself, Ryan Clark, and Sabrina Seek. Our executive producer is Amanda Joyner, and we are thrilled to announce that the Notcast finally has a permanent home in the historic Herzog Studio in Cincinnati, Ohio, home of the nonprofit Cincinnati USA Music Heritage Foundation. From 1945 to 55, the E.T. Herzog Recording Company recorded classics by Hank Williams, Patti Page, Bull Moose Jackson, and Flatten Scruggs. Thanks to the foundation, Herzog is back and providing a wide range of music experiences, a gallery space, instruments, books, a repair shop, events, and used vinyl. In fact, Herzog Music was recently named one of the coolest record stores in America by Mental Floss. Visit Herzog in person or sign up online at herzogmusic.com. That's H-E-R-Z-O-G music.com. The Notcast intro theme was put together by Colton Cruz, and our ending theme song is by the band Wussy. As always, if you enjoyed this episode, please subscribe and tell your friends or leave a review wherever you get your podcasts. If you have comments, questions, or ideas, email us at notcast at ripleys.com or tweet at ripleys. Be sure to catch the Notcast next week when we bring you the life of a half-man, featuring an interview with the world's shortest stuntman daredevil, Short E. Dangerously. That's next week on Ripley's Believe It or Not cast. So he's praying the ritual. He has the book in his hand, and as he's praying, he glances over and sees the levitation. He glances back, and then he just takes his other hand, puts it on the head of the person, pushes him back down into the chair without even flinching or missing a beat within the prayers. That's awesome. That's a pro. <laughs> Like, pray, 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 push down, pray, 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 pray. <laughs> wow. <laughs>